Okay, uh, today is October the 6th, 2011. Remember, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, we're going to have a Libronics seminar here. If you have Libronics 4, you can come and um, get brushed up on the way to use it. Understand there's some people out there who have it and don't even use it because they're not sure how to. Uh, Libronics 4 is so much better than Libronics 3. If you have 3, you won't miss it when you go to 4. So you might remember that. Ron, will you give that to Rachel over there, please? Thank you. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The option of rebound, if necessary, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness, for Your mighty Word, for giving us the ability to understand the whole realm of doctrine based on the Holy Spirit and Your grace, giving us the grace system of perception. We thank You for the time that we have to do it. Pray that You will help us to focus so that we can drink in Your Word in full measure that will go into long-term memory so that we can apply it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was coming to church Sunday, listening to the radio. I was listening to KHCB, and there was a church that was celebrating its 50th anniversary and how many millions of dollars they've gathered over the years and how many people they have reached, which is all a good thing. But I was kind of surprised because the pastor said, now, if you want to learn how to live the Christian way of life, you need to turn to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I thought, Matthew? I mean, the Matthew, Matthew is the Gospels. There's things that we can glean from them. But the detailed information as to how to use, how to live the supernatural spiritual life for the royal family of the church age is found in the epistles. Anyway, I was a bit uh, surprised, but I was proud that I did not let that get me off track. I didn't even mention it Sunday, but I thought I'd mention it now so I can... Uh, I, I was thinking about that last night when I was trying to go to sleep. So now, tonight, I will probably be able to go to sleep because it's, it's out, of my, out of my mind now. Well, we're going to start a new something tonight. You may have been anticipating it. I'll put the notes on the board. We are not going to go to a specific book. We're going to go to a subject matter. And here is the subject matter. Getting the gospel right. You may think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, everybody knows how to give the gospel. Well, I beg to differ with you. This is a huge issue. It is attacked on so many levels that we need to spend some time to make sure that we're going to get the gospel right. As we go through this, you're going to see that there is a lot to it. Even though it's a basic doctrine, still a lot to it. And I was listening to the radio on the way here today. And I heard for the umpteenth time, I don't know who it was, but they were finishing up their message. And they said, now I'm going to ask all of you to do something. you need to come forward and you need to give your life to Christ. And I thought, hmm, I thought that's what you did after you were saved. But this is, this is typical. Uh, give your heart to Jesus. And none of this, as we will see as we go through this, has anything to do with the gospel. We don't give Christ anything. We have nothing to offer. He is the one that gives the invitation, not us. And so um, a, a person could give their life to Christ, whatever that means, and I'm not sure. It's never really been 
define for me. You can do that and it does not save. There's only one thing that saves and that's faith alone in Christ alone. But you never hear that. So this is just yet another example of the issue that stands before us. We all need to be great ambassadors, representatives of Christ. We need to be looking for opportunities to give the gospel, to share the gospel. And as we go through this, hopefully it will embolden you. You will learn things that will help you not to be afraid and to be, I might say, audacious when it comes to being motivated to give the gospel. This is lesson one. Today is the sixth. It is difficult, if not impossible, to overstate the importance of the gospel. Those who accept it receive eternal life and spend eternity with God in eternal bliss. Those who reject it are condemned to the lake of fire and are separated from God for all eternity. Now I'd say that's pretty importante. Our eternal destiny. Whatever you do on earth, whatever the most important things that you do on earth cannot even start to compare with eternity. Our minds can't even conceive eternity. I can't. Maybe you can better than I can. But I think that something goes on and on and on and then eventually... It ends and something else starts. But there is no beginning. There is no ending. God just sanctioned out a segment of time that we know is time. In reality, there is no time. There is to us on earth. We are all tied to the clock. Can you live even one day without looking and seeing what time it is? Having some kind of sense of time? I have to admit, when I think of eternity and there being no time, it doesn't register with me. Well, we're all going to get together and have a great time. Okay, uh, when is that going to be? Oh, no time? You see the problem. But, of course, I don't have to sort that out. God has already taken care of that. But time is only for this physical body that we're in that is tremendous and yet it's very limiting. So when we think about the eternity, then we get on a whole new level of importance. And I want that to sink in right off the bat. Nothing is more important than your eternal destiny. And where you're going to spend eternity and what eternity is going to be like depends upon you getting the right information. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to sort this through, get the right information. The Bible tells us that every person except our Lord Jesus Christ is a sinner. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Galatians 3.22 But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. 1 John 1.8 If we say that we have no sin, we, de we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I don't think anyone here would ever claim that they are sinless. I don't think anybody in their right mind can say that they are sin sinless. There are a few out there, but they're pretty rare. So we could say that it's pretty well understood and taken for granted that we are all sinners. Certainly the Bible tells us that. God is holy, righteous, and just. He cannot abide sin. His perfect character demands that sin be condemned and judged. And the penalty for sin is death. There's no in-between. There's no plea bargaining. The sentence is death. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. 
Certainly the death mentioned here includes physical death. But we die physically because we are born spiritually dead. Spiritual death is separation from God or having no relationship with Him. It means that we are born under God's condemnation. We are born physically alive and spiritually dead, which means we have no relationship with God. We are under His condemnation. From the time you take your first breath, you are condemned by God. And we studied this at length. Some will say, now wait a minute. What if I hadn't committed a personal sin yet? I think all babies are professional sinners anyway, but still. We are condemned because of Adam's death. Excuse me, Adam's sin. And so what that does is put us under grace. Because we are condemned, now the grace of God can come into play. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. The old sin nature is passed down through the Father in procreation. Every person has an old sin nature. Actually, there's three strikes against us. We have imputed sin. We have inherited sin. And we have personal sin. In baseball, three strikes and what? You're out. In life, three strikes and you're dead. Of course, this presents a monumental problem that most people spend a lifetime trying to disregard. They do everything in their power to ignore the fact that they are accountable to Almighty God. They cling to the illusion that he will forget about the death sentence, his perfect justice placed on them if they only try a little harder to be a good person. That's what most people on this planet believe. What would people think if a judge released a murderer because he said he would try harder to be a good person? It's insane to think that a holy and just God would do such a thing. The fact is, no one can be saved unless he or she realizes that they need saving and can do nothing to save themselves. We are all accountable to an all-powerful God who condemns anyone to death that falls short of His perfect righteousness, and we all do. The Gospel is the gift of eternal life for all those who come to the end of themselves who recognize that they are sinners separated from a holy God, and there is absolutely nothing that they can do to merit salvation. All of this leads to the question of the ages which follows. But before I get to the question of the ages, I want to highlight the fact that most people who give the gospel, which are few, they don't take in consideration finding out if the person that they're talking to think that they even need to be saved. Because there are people out there, even though the Bible is very clear, we're all sinners, we're all deserving of God's judgment. God's judgment is spiritual death, separation from Him, condemned to the lake of fire for all eternity. We recognize that, but most people do not. And when you go and you start asking, asking them right off the bat, are you saved? What really pops in their head is, saved from what? They don't really, a lot of them don't even know what you're talking about. And so that would be a good place to start. Have you ever heard of uh, Ray Comfort? He is uh, an evangelist. I've seen him on TV several times. And what he does is he goes on the street. I love it that people that go on the street and they are talking to just regular people. And the way that he does it for them to recognize that they are hopelessly lost is he will ask someone, 
Are you a good person? And what do you think most people say? Yeah, yeah, I'm a good person. What they're thinking, well, I'm better than some of the people I know, maybe even most of the people know. I'm a pretty good person. He says, okay. He says, have you ever told a lie? And what, what do they say? You know, well, yeah, that's everybody. I've told a lie. He said, what, does the, uh, what do you call a person that tells a lie? A liar. Okay, then by your own admission, you're a liar. And then he'll ask them, um, have you ever stolen anything? In your whole life, have you ever stolen anything? And what would all of us have to say? Yes, yes. We're, if we're going to be honest, we've stolen something. What do you call a person that steals something? A thief. Then he says, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you, have you ever cursed using God's name? And most people will say, well, yes, I have. He says, what do you call a person that takes God's name in vain? A blasphemer. And he says, have you ever had impure thoughts when you're looking at a woman? Or if he's talking to a woman, it'd be to a man. And they would say, well, yeah, everyone does. The Bible says if you lust after a woman then you have already committed adultery or fornication with her in your heart. So what do you call a person who lusts after a woman, a fornicator? So he will say, okay, do you think that God is going to let you into his heaven when by your own account you say that you are a liar, a thief, a blasphemer, and a fornicator? By your own admission... Do you think that God is going to let you into heaven? And what do they say? Well, <laughs> nearly all of them, at first, they're kind of grinning. They think this is fun. But then they're not grinning any longer. And they say, well, I guess not. He says, well, do you think you're going to heaven or are you going to hell? And, and it's really amazing because some of them will say, oh, yes, I'm thinking, I, I think I'm going to go to heaven anyway. This would be one in the universalism crowd to think everyone is going to heaven. Now, God is just a, a, an old softy up there. He loves everybody. It doesn't matter what you do. You're all going to make it. But then there are some who says, you know, I never thought it that way. I guess I'm going to hell. And it gets very serious with some people. So this is the way one person will talk to someone instead of asking them, are you saved? First of all, he wants them by their own admission to acknowledge that there's no way that they are worthy to go to heaven. Just thought I would mention that. You can use that if you want to or however you want. But one thing we want to make sure before we just go up and ask someone, do you believe in Jesus Christ, which so many people do, we're going to see that that's really not that, that good a way of witnessing to people because they will automatically, at least a lot of them, will automatically link you and associate you with the nut jobs that are on the nut channel. You know, the ones that are just berserko. So that's one thing we want to keep in mind. But now back to the question of the ages. Anyone know what the question of the ages might be? I have three or four examples. Bildad was a friend of Job, and he asked in Job 25.4, How then can a man be just with God? Or, how can he be clean who is born of woman? Is it possible? If so, how? A voice asked Job in Job 4.17, Can mankind be justified before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? And then Job asked this question. In Job 9.2, How can a man be in the right before God? Understanding that you have three strikes against you, understanding that you are born spiritually dead, alienated from Christ and without hope that is, in your own devices. Can a man be just before God? 
Can a man be clean who is born from a woman? Can a man be right before God? What do you say? Yes or no? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, the, the, the answer is thumbs up. Yeah, I would have It's thumbs up. A man, I sure hope that a man can be just before God. I sure hope that a man can be right before God. He cannot do it on his own power, but it, it is possible, and that's part of what the gospel is all about, is answering this question for people. And then we have the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.30. He said, what must I do to be saved? Sounds like a simple question, doesn't it? Unfortunately, to most people, the answer to that question doesn't seem so clear. You could ask a dozen people this question and get a dozen different answers, even among professing Christians. What must a man, what must a man do to be saved? Line up 12 people. It doesn't matter who they are. Don't get them out of this church. Go somewhere else. Get them off the street. Line them up. Ask them. What must a man do to be saved? And you know what at least probably one of the ten is going to say? Saved from what? There are a multitude of various answers to this question, but most amazing is that the average Christian isn't exactly sure how to tell someone to be saved, so most of them don't even try. And you know that's the truth. Why don't they try? This is my first quote, and I have a lot of quotes. This is by, uh, from uh, Volume 4, Schaefer Theological Seminary Journal, Volume 4, 1998, page 27. It says, When it comes to telling others about Jesus Christ, many Christians have had an experience similar to that of the following businessman. Now, he's going to give this account. This is a fictional account. Well, it probably has happened, but he's trying to illustrate something. I would cross the street to avoid meeting someone who might ask me a question about my faith in Jesus Christ. If people started to talk about religion, I did everything I could to change the subject because I was afraid they were going to ask me a question that I could not answer. Over the years, I learned to sidestep witnessing situations because I knew that I was not prepared. Going up and talking to someone on a, a, a stranger about the gospel, I guess, is kind of like, yeah, here's my idea, kind of like pulling someone over in a car. You don't have a clue who it is, do you? I mean, normally you don't know if that's, it could be a, a, a pastor, it could be a deacon, it could be a Sunday school teacher, or it could be the guy that just robbed the bank and uh, has a gun pointed at you. You don't ever know. And it's the same way when you go on the street and you talk to someone and you don't have a clue who they are, what they believe, what their background is, religiously or spiritually. Are they a believer, unbeliever? Are they a Muslim, Hindu? Are they a Mormon, Jehovah Witness? Are they an atheist? You have no idea. And so I have to admit, it's somewhat daunting to go up to someone and start talking to them about Jesus Christ and the gospel when you don't know what they believe. But let me tell you something. If you're prepared, it doesn't matter what they believe. You are prepared to give them the gospel. And if they want to throw something at you, let them throw. You are going to qualify them. Just like in sales. If you are a good salesman, you have to be able to qualify people. You know what I'm talking about qualifying? Find out where are they. Are they a real customer, first of all? Are they really interested? And that's what you do when you, when you come up to someone on the street and you start talking to them about the gospel. You need to find out, are they a customer? Do they care? And sometimes, in fact, I saw this a couple of weeks ago, sometimes they will literally wave you away with their hand. They're not interested. They don't want to know. Uh, they uh, do everything but mock you and scorn 
the name of Jesus Christ. They don't want to have anything to do with you or your gospel. Those are pretty easy. This isn't a customer. What do you do if you're a salesman when a person is not qualified? You go to the next customer, don't you? Huh? Same thing when you're talking about giving the gospel. If they don't want to talk to you, if they make it very clear, I'm not interested, I don't believe that, whatever they say, okay, you go to the next one. But the ones that are hard to deal with are the, like the same ones if you're a salesman and you're dealing with someone and they look like they're a real customer. You've probably been that way yourself. You go somewhere and this salesman is really a good salesman. You like him and he's, he's very energetic and he, he, you, you want to give him the answers that he wants to hear. But you're not really a customer. Listen, I learned that the hard way when I was selling log homes over there in that model home. Most people that come along, even if they act like they're a customer, are not. And you have to decipher that. And you know the way that you find out? You ask them. You ask them questions. You know, I think that giving the gospel should be more listening than it is talking. And unfortunately, most of the time it's just the opposite. There's a lot more talking on a person that is trying to evangelize than there ought to be. You've got to find out, where is this person? Are they a customer? Are they interested? And if so, where are they coming from? What is their background? And we're going to go through ways to do that. This is all introduction tonight. Listen, this is going to, we're going to sift this to the bottom. And there are ways to approaching people without being intrusive, without uh, being rude or invading their privacy. Just normal chit-chat that you do all the time, but you're thinking as you're talking to them where this is going to lead. But I'll save that for later. The businessman, businessman mentioned above achieved success in the business world by applying diligence and preparation to his job. Time was invested in learning answers to the possible questions that a potential client might ask. This man's problem in the area of witnessing was quite simple. Knowing he was unprepared, he avoided the embarrassment that lack of preparation would bring. He was afraid. He was scared because he was not prepared. He was not trained. Again, I'm sorry that I'm using this analogy of when I was in the log home business over there, but it follows so perfectly. Because I was afraid to ask people questions because I didn't know how to do it. And uh, this was Real Log Homes Company. that uh, we, we were independent representatives, but we were trained by Real Log Homes. And they went to great expense to train us. And I'm so glad they did. We went to this uh, sales training a seminar. And one of the first things they were going to teach us how to do is how to make a cold call to talk to someone about buying the log house. Now, if you've never done that before, it's pretty scary. I mean, you're not talking about buying a radio or, a, or something small. You're talking about a house. Now, we would, when I say cold call, I'm not saying we would just pick names out of the phone book. We would pick names of people who have already written in for a brochure or something that already showed that they were interested. And so we had a, a little flip thing here to tell us. Now, if they're saying this, now this is what you want to say. If they say this over here, then you want to tell them this. And I have my little flip sheet there. And they, were, they had trained us. First of all, when you talk to them on the phone, you know what they had us do? You had to be smiling. When you're on the phone and you're talking to a possible uh, sales, you, you smile because they hear it. They, they get that in your voice. And we were very polite and we would say we are responding to their request of information on such, such and such a house. And we didn't go for the throat, right? You just talk to them. And you'd be surprised how much information you get. When I'll just 
give you an example. Uh, by the way, I was a nervous wreck. I was, I was really when we were, we spent about two hours going through this whole thing, and then they said, "Here's the phone. Here's the number. Call." And I'm, I could hardly handle the phone. I was just, I was, I don't know why I was so scared, but I was afraid. I'm very competitive, and I thought I got to do better than anybody else. So I, and so. <laughs> Try, I was trying to sound relaxed, but I was anything but relaxed. And somehow I was able to make an appointment on that first call. And then I was just, oh, well, I've got this. You know, this isn't so hard. But I had the, I had the training. I knew what to do. If I didn't do that, I would just ramble. I wouldn't know what to do. But the next call I made put me back into reality. That woman turned me away but loose. I had no control. But anyway, here, here's what I'm trying to tell you is that we need to be prepared and trained. And when you're trained, it's nothing to it. They, treat us, they, they trained us how to qualify people that came into our model home. The first thing we would, how are you doing? Good, glad you came to see us. Uh, are you from this area? Now, that sounds like an innocuous question. I mean, just small talk, right? No, it's not small talk. I'm from the very get-go. It's registering and it's going through the computer and I'm thinking, okay, I'm trying to figure out is this person a real qualified buyer or not? Because if they say, well, uh, no, I'm really from Montana. I'm down here visiting my daughter. What, what, what does that tell me? I'm going to be nice to them. They can look around, but hey, they're not qualified. Before that, I would every person that came in the door, I would spill my guts. Oh, this is the best house since it's bread, and we got this, and we got that, and blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, no, 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 no. And, you know, they're just standing there kind of like this. This is what a lot of people do when they evangelize, when they witness to somebody. They think if they can tell them enough good things about Jesus Christ and tell them the whole realm of doctrine, what little bit they know, then they're bound to come across. And I can tell you, it don't work. It does not work. I did that on one guy, and I must he was, I thought, boy, this is a really good listener. And finally, <laughs> And finally, he looked at his watch and I said, what's the matter? He said, well, I'm just here where my wife is down there at the fair, uh, killing time. I guess I better be going. You know, and I thought, I didn't know how to qualify. Didn't know how to do it. Well, that's what we're going to do as we go through this training on getting the gospel right. There's a lot more to it than just having a canned speech to give to somebody. So that's where we're headed. How bad is the problem now uh, with regards to the situation that we're in regarding the gospel? Many, if not most believers, go months or even years without ever witnessing to anyone. And that is the great majority of believers. It's getting awful quiet in here. They don't look for opportunities to share the gospel. They look for excuses to avoid it. They are stymied by notions that it's not polite to talk about religion or politics. Have you ever heard of that? Huh? You do have to use some discernment. But are we going to let people fry in hell for all eternity because someone might think us rude because we try to witness to them and give them the gospel? It's not a good idea to go into a, a, a crowd of people and start singling someone out and in front of all of them try to evangelism, evangelize them because they are going to be embarrassed. They're going to... They're not even going to be listening to what you say. So there is some discernment there. But let me tell you something. What did I say at the beginning? Our eternal destiny is more important than anything. We have to keep that in mind when we're talking about the gospel. So these people are uncomfortable or even embarrassed to mention Jesus Christ's name or the Bible to other people. Embarrassed. And you might recognize that when you talk to people, just in normal corresponding with people, you can talk about God all day long and that's fine, but you start talking about Jesus Christ and feathers start being ruffled. Believers who are doctrinally strong are much more likely to evangelize the lost than those who are spiritually malnourished. 
there's a direct, a direct correlation between learning Bible doctrine and being motivated to share the gospel. Did you hear that? A direct correlation between learning Bible doctrine and being motivated to share the gospel. If you're not learning Bible doctrine, if your spiritual life is not moving forward, if you don't have momentum in your spiritual life, what's the chance that you're going to have any motivation to witness? Not much. The Word of God encourages us and motivates us to share the good news with others. When believers neglect the Word, evangelism suffers. The whole nation suffers. This fact has certainly become a reality today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. By the time we get through with this introduction, you're going to be better acquainted with how utterly desperate our situation is with regards to spreading the gospel and with regards to our spiritual state, period. This was a prophecy that certainly has come home to roost. This is a quote from uh, the Brian Call, Dave Hunt, April 1997. Absolute truth is rejected by 71% of Americans. 64% of born-againers and 40% of evangelicals. That's pretty staggering in itself, is it not? Most Presbyterians and Methodists and 88% of Roman Catholics active in their churches believe one enters heaven by being good enough. And 30% of born-againers deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just a few statistics. Clearly, those who make up these statistics know neither God nor His Word. They have religion, but not Christ. Multitudes baptized into Christianity as infants do not personally know Him. Whom to know is eternal life, according to John 17.3 and 1 John 5.20. Loyalty to denomination substitutes for Christ. And this is across the board in every denomination. I don't know if you know what pluralism is, but here's a definition of it. Pluralism is the view that all religions have the same moral value and offer the same potential for achieving salvation. However, salvation may be construed, however it's construed. No one religion can claim to be the only way because pluralism rejects absolutism. If you are a pluralist, then you think your religion is as good as mine. They all have essentially the same value. And in John 14:6, where Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into me but through God the Father. I mean, through, I mean, through Christ. That sets people on fire. They hate that. But if you are a pluralist, then you will subscribe to that being no better than what the Hindus or Muslims believe. Pluralism and postmodernism go hand in hand and are quickly becoming the norm rather than the exception. Do you all remember what postmodernism is? It is what really has taken the country by storm. It is the belief that there is no absolutes. When you talk to a postmodern person, they think that there is no reality. And certainly the Bible cannot be absolute truth. It's easy to understand why. In most churches today, the Bible has taken a back seat to relationships and programs. Relationships and programs rule the day in most churches today. The centrality of Scripture is all but gone in so many churches. Look around the average church on any given Sunday and it's hard to find anyone taking notes, much less even carrying a Bible. Can you believe that? If you've been on vacation, you've gone to other churches, take note. 
Now, what type of evangelistic impact do you suppose these churches have? How effective will these Christians be in carrying the good news of the gospel to a hardened, cynical world? How successful are they when they are facing a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness? They will be cut to shreds. They will run and hide under the bed when they hear the doorbell ring or when they see a couple of guys riding a bicycle with a tie. But hide! Why? They're afraid because they are totally unprepared to stand for the faith that is once and all given to the saints. Here's another brilliant call. The only enemy of liberalism is fundamentalism's firm adherence to Scripture. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones bemoaned the fact that many evangelicals have moved from preaching to sharing, which subtly exchanges the authority of God's Word for human experience and opinion. Compromise won't help the unbeliever to see light. It only further blinds him. Tolerance winks at man's unwillingness to bow to God's authority. Liberalism inevitably hardens itself against truth. We see that today worldwide. And look at that date, 1998. How far have we slipped since then? The ecumenical movement contributes to the demise of the gospel. Y'all remember what ecumenism is? The ecumenical movement, remember? They worship at the shrine of unity. Unity is more important than anything. For many believers today, unity is more important than Scripture. Sound doctrine. Listen to this. This is interesting. I never thought about this till I came upon this. Sound doctrine both unites and divides. It unites those committed to it and divides them from all others who oppose it. Isn't that a true statement? Since doctrine has the potential to survive, it must be compromised or abandoned for the sake of unity, which is the ultimate goal of ecumenism. And that is rampant today. How many of you have heard of Kenneth Copeland? Or Kenneth Hagin. Well, you can find them on the Nut Channel. Kenneth Copeland in December, this is another quote. Kenneth Copeland in December 1988, Believer's Voice of Victory, the unity of faith, won't be based upon doctrine. You see, doctrine doesn't unify, it divides. It doesn't matter what your doctrine is, we'll be unified by the Spirit of God. Really? Hmm. When we'll, uh, when we'll drop our silly list of doctrinal demands and come together in the unity of faith. To Copeland and the others, faith is a positive force for producing miracles that has nothing to do with truth and doctrine. According to Kenneth Hagin, now Kenneth Hagin is the older man. He is the mentor, one of the mentors of Kenneth Copeland. According to Kenneth Hagin, in having in your faith, excuse me, faith in your faith. This is the name of the book that he wrote. Listen to Faith in Your Faith. That's what we do not have. Faith in your faith. Even non-Christians can develop God's laws of faith and get miracles. This is religious science and the rankest of heresies, yet it is regularly taught and defended on the two largest Christian TV networks TBN and CBN. And you can see this at any time. You can see this type of garbage nearly round the clock on these TV stations. Here's another example of this ecumenism. The Pope is emerging as the inspirational leader in an unprecedented international ecumenism. He has cleverly declared that a common concern for the welfare of humanity will be the means of uniting all religions into one. Who's going to do that? <laughs> Seems like we got a preview here. The Pope has met with leading Muslims and Buddhists, including the Dalai Lama, 
and in doing so has repeatedly called for a uniting of all world's religion. And that goes on round the clock. Writing in the Tibetan Review and quoted in the Catholic world, a Buddhist monk evaluated the goals of this dialogue. The unity of religion promoted by Holy Father Pope John Paul II and approved by His Holiness the Dalai Lama is not a goal to be achieved immediately, but a day may come when the love and compassion which both Buddha and Christ preach so eloquently will unite the world in a common effort to save humanity from the senseless destruction by leading it towards the light in which we all believe. I classify this as claptrap. And yet, most of the world buys into this. I'm showing you the environment, the climate in which we are to operate in giving the gospel. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And we just heard one. Doctrinal purity is essential for salvation as well as executing the unique spiritual life of the royal family of God during the church age. Did you hear that? Spirit, uh, uh, doctrinal purity is essential for salvation. That means giving the gospel accurately as well as living the unique spiritual life which we have. This is from Dan Kimball, The Emerging Church. We should be returning to a no-holds-barred approach to worship and teaching so that when we gather, there is no doubt we are in the presence of holy God. I believe that both believers and unbelievers in this emerging culture are hungry for this. It isn't about clever apologetics or careful exegetical and expository preaching. Emerging generations are hungry to experience God in worship. And I had emphasized there, experience God. He doesn't state what experiencing God is, but that's why a lot of people go to church because they are looking for an experience. They want to be emotionally stimulated. They want to have some type of sensationalism. Look at this. Let's look at this just a moment. We should be returning to a no-holds-barred approach to worship and teaching so that when we gather, it is no, no doubt in the presence of a holy God. And he's saying that it appears that the whole idea is to have this experience. That's from Dan Kimball, The Emerging Church. Then this is from Roger Oakland, Faith Undone, in the, uh, page 55. He says, As you will see, an experience-based Christianity is the wave of the emerging church and its leaders are beckoning all to rise. Now, you know, you, do I need to explain to you about the emerging church? Y'all know, y'all familiar with that term and what it's referring to? It's talking about those who try to reach the believers and get people to their church by Madison Avenue marketing techniques. You can grow your church. They work. But you're not relying on the Holy Spirit and eventually the, the church is going to crumble because you're giving them lies. So he says, As you see an experience-based Christianity, the wave of the emerging church and its leaders are beckoning to all to ride. In 1992, Leif Anderson, Doug Paget's former pastor, I don't know if you've ever heard of Doug Paget, but he is a big, big gun in the emerging church. He spoke of the new emerging 21st century church. His views eventually became set in stone as the emerging church has chosen experience over doctrine. Anderson reveals, um, and this was in uh, Oakland, Faith Undone. I've got this one more quote here, and I think I'll stop here. Uh, this isn't, I, I know that this isn't very encouraging. 
but I'm trying to give you a true picture of the landscape. We better be prepared because everything has changed and now we've gone from postmodernism to something else, which I'll describe later. The, the, the landscape is changing. It doesn't matter what it changed. We have the truth. The truth doesn't change. And we be, better be ready and prepared and motivated and willing to give it. The old paradigm taught that if you had the right teaching, you could experience God. Well, I've never said that. Have I ever said that doctrine is going to give you what you need to, in order to experience God? We're not here to experience God. We are here to be trained to get the tools that we need to do spiritual combat, which we are involved in every single day. Not about experience. But anyway, he says that's the old paradigm. The new paradigm says that if you experience God, you will have the right teaching. That's what the old one says. Uh, excuse me, the new one says. See, the old one said that if you're taught right, you'll experience God. But the new one says that if you have the experience, then you're going to have the right teaching. You see, they put the cart before the horse. This may be disturbing to many who assume propositional truth or propo uh, yeah, propositional truth must always precede and dictate religious experience. You see, that's what we say. We think that we learn doctrine, and when we learn the doctrine, that that's going to dictate uh, what we should do in our experiences. He says, that is the mind of systematic theology and has much to contribute. He's throwing us a bone here. Well, you know, systematic theology is okay. He'll throw us a bone. It has something to contribute. However, Bible theology looks to the Bible for a pattern of experience followed by a proposition. I think that's what that word up there should have been, proposition instead of uh, prepositional. And so it's all about experience. Anderson is saying that the Word of God is still being written and today's experiences can dictate what the Word is. I know this, this sounds uh, utterly ridiculous and confusion, but that's the landscape that we are to traverse through when we are going to give the absolute truth to a very dark world. All this is by way of introduction. And we have much more to say on this subject. I hope that by the time we're through with this that you're going to have your questions answered, that you're going to be eager to pick up that phone and qualify somebody, that you're going to be eager to go out there and do spiritual battle and uh, be a, a good Christian soldier. And if there's any fear or intimidation or dread, that can be dispelled. I know personally what it was when I was trying to get out into sales when I didn't know what I was doing, but after I was trained, I was eager and I was richly rewarded. Let's close. Father, thank You for this time You've given us to focus upon this most important issue. We recognize that there is great disparity when it comes to uh, people's thoughts with regards to heaven, Jesus Christ, and being saved. But you have given us the absolute truth. We pray that you will help us to stay plugged in to go through this so that we can be better ambassadors for you. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.